We are continuing uh, in the Gospel of Luke, making our way into the 13th chapter, although uh, some of the commentators say that uh, this uh, section, these first nine verses, are rightly the climax of the 12th chapter, and uh, and maybe we'll see that uh, here in a minute. Uh, We are in the middle of what, again, Bible teachers, Bible scholars call the travel narrative in the Gospel of Luke. Because the journey has uh, begun where they've left Galilee and they're making their way to Jerusalem. Now, in reality, uh, we know that Jesus went back and forth, certainly down to Jerusalem for feast days. But the way that Luke structures uh, his gospel, there is this one journey. And uh, the uh, flavor of this section is discipleship. Uh, It's more instructive, less miracles and public teaching, less public amazement, although there's some of that. We'll get to that next week again. Uh, But it still reveals the person of Jesus for those who will hear. If if people will pay attention, they will know who Jesus is and what he's up to. Uh, For Christians, uh, he's outlining and uh, and detailing, really, what it means to live in the kingdom. Uh, So Tim preached about that recently that the kingdom is a very large theme in this section of Luke, what it means to live under the king. So the teaching's been rigorous. Uh, It's been uh, difficult. Uh, The 12th chapter began and ended with allegations of hypocrisy, and we'll actually get to a little bit more of that next week. Um, But it's strenuous, and uh, it's important to understand that a Christian life is both restful Uh, and strenuous at the same time. Uh, It is both um, receiving passively uh, God's good gift, but it's also acting uh, actively and energetically uh, in the interest of God's kingship. Uh, For non-Christians, there is always the invitation uh, to read carefully, uh, to taste and see that the Lord is good, Uh, And you may also uh, be amazed uh, when you read uh, carefully the things that Jesus does, uh, and in in our case this morning, the things that he says. Uh, So I'm going to read Luke uh, chapter 13, uh, the first nine verses. Uh, I want you to pay attention to this. Uh, I have been in the habit of uh, standing whenever the Word of God is read in deference to it, and Uh, We're not going to do that uh, this morning, Uh, but sit up straight, Uh, pay attention. This is the Word of God. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, 
let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Uh, This is the Word of God. Amen. So here we are. Uh, At this very time is what it says in the first verse. So obviously there's a continuity uh, flowing from the previous chapter. Uh, These folks come to him, not sure what their motivation is. Uh, It could be various, and you have preachers and commentators who will suss out the various possibilities. Uh, But they come complaining of Pilate's brutality. And, And they come wanting Jesus to comment on that. Uh, in light of the things that he's just said. Maybe they are seeking to lure Jesus into their cause. Uh, But it's a hazardous thing uh, to be the victim of some evil that has been perpetrated. Uh, Because there is something that goes on in the human heart that is worth noticing. And it's interesting because we've got a, you know, a new kind of modern twist on how we look at ourselves and look at the culture, and we, we did this examination from Carl Truman's book, uh, uh, Strange New World, about the therapeutic self, and one of the things that is noticed in the therapeutic self is you're always looking for someone else to blame, you're always looking for a way to say, it's not my fault. Uh, well, that is not a modern tendency. Uh, that is something that is endemic to the human condition. Uh, one of my... Uh, favorite commentators on these gospel accounts of Jesus is a guy named Kenneth Bailey. I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, he has a very interesting uh, way of looking at things. He, he actually taught for many years uh, in Beirut uh, at the university there, and he really made his mark by going out uh, into uh, the wilds of the uh, Near East and, uh, and interviewing Bedouin tribesmen uh, and asking them to comment on the things that Jesus was saying. And uh, he gets a very interesting, kind of a different and fresh look <clears throat> at what's going on, in, uh, in especially the parables uh, that Jesus tells. Uh, but he makes a comment on this passage, and he says, Those who fight for a just cause often, assumes, often assume that the struggle for the cause makes them righteous. It does not. The more intense the struggle for justice, the more the oppressed tend to assume their own righteousness. This assumption of righteousness at times expresses itself in an arrogance that refuses any criticism. Now, that's deep. I mean, we could kind of stop right now and say, let's break into small groups and discuss that. Uh, But it is the case in your heart and in my heart that we will take grief done to us as a point of justification, as a claim to righteousness. And so you see this in popular culture. Uh, You see groups trying to outdo one another of who's more victimized, you know, who has the greater claim to having been oppressed. Uh, But here you've got it, you know, right in Luke chapter 13. uh, It's something that resides in all of our hearts. That is, that if something is done to me, um, then certain opportunities are available to me that would not be available otherwise. So Jesus refuses to take the bait. 
he doesn't condemn their cause, but he doesn't act, and he doesn't acquiesce to Pilate, uh, but neither does he embrace their cause. Uh, and not getting on board may or may not put him in a precarious position. Uh, he may seem to be disloyal to the cause of the Jews, but he understands that the subtext to their question is God's justice and how it's distributed. Specifically, do those who suffer deserve it? You know, so that's Jesus' answer to them. Do you think that, all, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Uh, that's a question that all of us ask to ourselves. We are, by nature, superstitious. You know, when Sam was praying, I don't know if it was during the service or it was earlier when the pastors were praying together, uh, he prayed that we are coming into worship because it's woven into the fabric of our being to worship. And that's true. We will worship something. It is also woven into the fabric of our being to be a little bit superstitious and when bad things happen, to wonder what we did wrong. Or to ask the question, and it happens in all of us, I think, why is God letting this happen to me? And, and the, the inverse is true as well. You know, when, when something good happens, when blessing comes upon you, you start to wonder, you know, what have I been doing right and how can I replicate it? You know, that crazy, dumb scene in an otherwise acceptable movie, The Sound of Music. I, I read recently that Christopher Plummer was very unhappy with that movie and he used to call it The Sound of Mucus. Um, but otherwise acceptable, actually when T and I first met, she was appalled to find out I'd never seen the movie, so one of the things that I had to do was see that. But there's that one scene where they're falling in love with each other, and they assume that it's because they've done something good. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good that this blessing would come upon me. Well, the same way, if, if, if some tragedy befalls you, I must have done something bad. Uh, God is punishing me. And what Jesus does is he uh, um, resists that pat answer. He brings up a different incident in verses 4 and 5 with the same question. Tower falls on 18. Uh, does God care? Did God care about those people? Why did he let that happen to them? How can such a God be worshipped? I mean, this is what happens. I, I've gone to Luke 13 several times in the last 20 years, whenever a big disaster took place. And my congregation in Cambridge, mostly young people, were asking the questions, how can this happen? And so you remember when the tsunami hit uh, in Southeast Asia. And, and even, there were even editorials in secular journals, how could God make, let this happen? These poor innocent people who perished. And of course, 9-11 was a huge deal for us. Two of those jets took off from Boston. Uh, the people knew people uh, who had died uh, in New York City. In fact, we had members of our church come over to watch TV with us because their parents were working uh, in the Twin Towers that morning, and they got out. Uh, but that stuff hit close to home. In fact, it's interesting that uh, we used to pray on Tuesday mornings. Our prayer meetings were Tuesday mornings, and they were similar to these. Um, it was a small group that got together to pray. Uh, but, you know, when I showed up Tuesday morning, September 12th, there were 50 people waiting outside 
uh, the building wanting to get in because they knew they needed to pray. Uh, But we went to Luke 13. How can God let this happen? John 9 has a similar interaction. Uh, The disciples come to Jesus and ask about a man born blind. Uh, Who sinned? Did this guy sin? Did his parents sin? There has to be a one-to-one correlation between his suffering and God's judgment. And Jesus answered then, that's not true. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed. So again, we've got these superstitions trying to anticipate uh, who God is when things go badly, when, even when things go well. And that's really another sermon to unpack all of that. But Jesus' short answer is, no, your misfortunes are not usually, if ever, the direct judgment of God. Uh, something else is going on that should enable you to reflect. When things go badly and and when things go well, he says the solution is the same. You need to repent. And we get to this hard moment in this passage. In some of the accounts of the difficult sayings of Jesus, you will find this passage. Uh, Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says it again in verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And when difficulty comes on us, I mean, let's be honest about this. It's offensive that someone would suggest or intimate that I need to repent. And I know in the secular mind, the blasphemy is often uttered Maybe God needs to repent. I don't need to repent. I'm just sitting here minding my own business. Uh, Jesus says you need to repent. And that gets into a way of thinking that, you know, I I hope we can take very seriously. I hope you can take it very seriously. Uh, Again, those who suffer presume clemency for their own sin. After all we've suffered... After this has happened to us and that happened to us, after these bad people have inflicted us with their badness, their evil, when I've been done wrong, when someone has offended me, when someone has betrayed me, again, one of the major subtexts of our modern therapeutic culture is that if someone has hurt me, I'm released from the constraints of God's Word And I am somehow justified to return that hurt. If someone hurts me, I feel like I have the prerogative somehow to turn around and hurt him. Uh, This happens, this is a, a, a dynamic in marriages, a dynamic in families, a dynamic in churches. If you hurt me, It's weird, isn't it? Because we'd even use the word justification. If you hurt me, I am justified in my response because you're the one who hurt me. Uh, Jesus will have none of that. He'll have none of that as they come and pose this question to him. And again, let's reflect on everything that's happened thus far in, in chapter 12 having to do with hypocrisy. 
the leaven of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, uh, Jesus says there's always need for repentance. And if you take a step back from this, it, you know, I want to say in a, in a very broad sense that the Christian faith doesn't make any sense without repentance. You know, when Jesus shows up at the beginning of all of the Gospels, he's got a word, doesn't he? He says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Sometimes you'll see repent and believe, and those two things hold together. And if we did a deep dive into the nature of salvation, we would understand repentance and faith coalescing at that point. You know, some of the better theologians say that uh, real faith is always repentant faith, and real repentance always believes and entrusts itself to God's good mercy. But I've always thought it was amusing that you you can drive around the countryside, or you can even look in the PCA's directory, and you will find a lot of churches called Faith Presbyterian Church, or Grace Presbyterian Church, or Hope Presbyterian Church, but you will never find Repentance Presbyterian Church. But repentance and faith hold together. You can't understand one without the other. The life of faith is not a matter of whipping yourself into shape. It's not a matter of trying harder to be obedient. It's not essentially a matter of discipline. It's a matter of coming face to face with God. Honestly, that's what repentance implies. That your back is to God and you're turning around to face him. We have this moment in every worship service where we are called by some part of God's Word to reflect on our lives, uh, to reflect on our lives in the presence of His law, in the presence of His command, um, and, and then to deal with Him. And, you know, that's, you know, in some ways, I, I heard one guy say one time, one pastor say, this is the reason we're here. You know, we could kind of do without a lot of the other stuff in our worship service as long as we had this right here, where we reflect on our lives in light of God's Word, we turn and we face Him, we deal with Him honestly, and we enter into a living, breathing need for His mercy, for what the blood of Christ has to offer. Luther's first thesis, you may know, uh, of the 95 that he hammered to the door of the church in Wittenberg, uh, was that when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire lives of believers be lives of repentance. The entire lives, not a one-time shot when you first came to Christ, but a living, breathing, in an inhale, exhale, you're inhaling the good news of God, the, the grace of God, the kindness of God, and you exhale with repentance. You know, there's that verse that a lot of us don't really want to deal with in Romans chapter 2, where the apostle, and he's, you know, again, it's the beginning of Romans, so he's really trying to present things very starkly, although not unreasonably, 
but he's coming to religious people who don't think they have much need, and he says, do you show contempt for the kindness of God, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? An unrepentant Christian life is not a Christian life. Now, it's shocking that Jesus says this here in this context, but it's, he, I mean, he, he couldn't love the disciples more than to remind them, you know, as they're imagining these griefs that have been perpetrated against them, that it does not obviate their need to repent. So let's talk a little bit about what repentance is not. Repentance is not penance. I've mentioned Jack Miller, who was my pastor uh, for a couple of years, and then I worked alongside him uh, in World Harvest Mission, which is now Surge. And uh, his first book, which a lot of people don't know, uh, it was called Repentance in 20th, 20th Century Man. I think it might have been retitled for the 21st century. But his main point in that book, the theme of it, was repentance is not penance. It's not groveling. It's not a morose countenance. It's not saying, oh, woe is me, self-flagellation, you know, I'm a miserable person, I'm a miserable offender. In fact, it's interesting that his biography, when it was written later, uh, was a quote, Jack used to often say, cheer up, uh, you're not as good as you think you are. Um, and, and so there was a cheerfulness to it, but repentance is not penance, it's not pretending. That's what we've been talking about, right, with hypocrisy. It's not pretending uh, that you feel a grief for your shortcomings. You know, my, uh, I, I have the word distaste written in my notes, and I think that's too strong a word, but my resistance to uh, the church calendar largely centers on my distaste, I think I can say that, for the season of Lent when people pretend uh, to be penitent and do silly things like uh, giving up chocolate. And, uh, and, you know, when I was in a particularly sour mood one time and feeling (laughs) feisty about this, I I wrote down uh, a list of uh, penitential practices Uh, that I advised my church with. Now, this is a young church. They had a good sense of humor. I said, here's what I think you ought to do for Lent. Number one, eat sweets and aim to gain a few pounds. That would really go against uh, the culture, so to speak. Number two, I said, refuse to be entertained. Renounce entertainment. And it was beautiful because, you know, Lent comes in the spring, so I said, you got to Skip March Madness, opening day, movies, concerts, listening to recorded music. You can sing and play your own instrument and join others who are doing so, but, but step away from entertained, being entertained. I suggested no internet in the evening. Uh, that caused people to choke. Uh, in this young congregation, I said, uh, stop using birth control and see what happens. And again, it was this sense, you know, there was a little bit of a sense of, wait a minute. All of my cherished realities are being challenged. Well, that's supposed to be what happens in repentance. 
I suggested to them that they tithe to themselves and that they give the other 90% away. And that they forego complaining, blame shifting, and defensiveness. Now that'll make you repent. And you have to repent quickly. And you'll have to access God's mercy quickly because you can't live under that burden. So repentance is not penance, neither is it promising to do better. You know, promising to do better is the quickest and easiest way to justify yourself. Uh, when I, I was, I think many of you know, I was raised uh, in the Church of Rome, and we had an act of contrition uh, that we would pray when we went to confession. And uh, while the priest was ab- absolving us in Latin, uh, we would pray, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry. I know some of you know this prayer. Uh, and you would end that act of contrition by saying, I firmly resolve to sin no more and to avoid the near occasions of sin. Amen. Now, just to be fair, you do say, uh, I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace, but that would get into the complicated matter of how the Church of Rome views grace. But what I remember as a kid was saying, I promise I'll do better. Someone handed me Luther's commentary on Galatians, and I got to his comment, the 1535 commentary. I think he wrote four or five of them. Two of them are published. In chapter 5, where it says, you who are seeking to be justified by the law have been separated from Christ, you've fallen from grace. Luther says this. He says, when you come under the conviction of your sin, make sure that you don't seek to justify yourself as one who intends to live a better life. And I just about (laughs) fell off the chair because it's what I've been doing my whole life. God, you can forgive me on this basis. I promise I'll do better. Repentance is not promising to do better. Repentance is not penance. It is not insight into your sin without any actual movement, without any actual change. Uh, Thomas Watson The Puritan wrote a lovely little book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Every other good book on repentance has echoed uh, what Watson has said. And I'm running out of time, so I can't give you all of it. Um, Or at least I can't embellish all of it. I will tell you what he says, that repentance is a matter of seeing your sin and owning it. So you're not prevaricating. You're not excusing it. You're not saying, oh, it was a difficult set of circumstances. You're owning it. Secondly, you're grieving over it. Thirdly, you're ashamed of it. That's something that we're told to steer clear of. You hate it, you confess it, and then you turn from it. Now, the interesting thing, I think, about Watson's analysis of that is that many evangelicals that I know of nowadays would define repentance only in terms of that last category, that repentance is simply turning away from your sin. That repentance is merely the the modification of your behavior. But you miss all the best stuff. All the best stuff has to do with your relationship with God. And what has happened? I mean, isn't this what, what David cried out in his confession? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
That's a bold statement for a guy who committed adultery and murdered someone, had someone murdered. I'd love to spin out the details of that, but that'll have to be another time. I think that Watson does a great job unpacking essentially what is in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. There is no Christian faith without repentance. You need to repent when bad things happen to you, when good things happen to you, you always need to repent. And the amazing thing is here that God is giving you time to repent. He's giving you a season of clemency. And that's what this parable is all about in the last uh, few verses that I just read. God is merciful. He's extending the time in which he expects to see fruit. The reason that a tower hasn't fallen on you is not because you've been good, but because God has been merciful. And so here's this parable. The man has a fig tree. Uh, It is fruitless. He tells the vine dresser to chop it down. The vine dresser says, give me a year. I will dig around it and put on manure, fertilizer, and then see if it will bear fruit. Um, Fruit is a big deal in the Gospel of Luke, if we were reading it. Uh, a whole bunch at a time, we'd see that. John called for the fruit of, fruit of repentance, John the Baptist, back in chapter 3. Uh, Jesus made fruitfulness a category for evaluation in his Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. He showed in the parable of the sower that fruitfulness is the necessary consequence of real faith, that there's always fruit with real faith. And the connections here are obvious. You're the unfruitful tree. The landowner is God who desires to chop down unfruitful trees. The vine dresser is Jesus going to work on you by the Holy Spirit. He is digging and he is fertilizing. One of the old Puritans said what he's digging is he's breaking up the roots because your roots have gone so deeply into uh, worldliness, into the things of the world, the concerns of the world. And so the vine dresser is getting in and breaking up those roots with usually difficulty in your life. Those roots are being broken up. And then he is also fertilizing, he is feeding you his word by his spirit. Uh, that's what God is doing. That's what Jesus is doing by the Holy Spirit. If you have ears to hear, you'll pay attention to this. Uh, Once again, and I've mentioned this in the past, and it was mentioned last week as well, uh, the judgment is in view. This is serious stuff, is what Jesus is saying. His disciples, as he's discipling them, as you and I are being discipled by listening to his word, have to live in light of the coming judgment, in light of the fact that he's coming again. And Jesus says, if you don't repent, you will perish. If you don't bear fruit, the same thing. So there isn't a great promise and good ending to this. So I'm going to dig around in the Bible and find one. 
there are two books in the Old Testament that stress repentance. Uh, and near the end of them, there is actually repentance. After a lot of struggle, unhappiness, conflict, uh, there is repentance and rest. There is quietness and there is trust. Uh, one of those is the book of Hosea. Uh, you may know that book. Uh, there is always the coming and going as, as he has married a prostitute and she goes out and prostitutes herself and then comes back, goes out and comes back. He says Israel's a lot like that. There's even a a nod to repentance in chapter 6, which I take to be a false repentance. Uh, but when you get to chapter 14, and look this up later on in the day, uh, the Israelites are told to confess their sin, to forsake Assyria as their protection, to forsake their idols, the things their hands have made as objects of worship. Uh, they're told to remember and appeal to God's mercy. It's, it's interesting the way it's written, it says, in you the orphan finds mercy. And ostensibly they do so. And then there's this great description that follows that on how God will forgive them. He will heal them. He will love them. They will flourish. They will grow. And they will be fruitful. That's the description. They repent. God comes and heals and forgives Healing and forgiveness are always tied together in the Old Testament. He will heal them and forgive them, love them, and they flourish and they are fruitful. Similarly, at the end of Job, after all of his difficulties, which rose to some pretty dicey objections and even veiled criticisms on his part, uh, in chapter 40, he shuts his mouth and listens Remember that? He says, I cover my mouth with my hand. And in chapter 42, it says that he repents in dust and ashes. And the rest of that chapter is Job's restoration and his flourishing. This is what Jesus has in mind when he tells his disciples that they need to repent. When part of his discipleship to them is that repentance needs to uh, be a part of what it means to follow him, what it means to believe the gospel, that there is repentance and faith. So if you want to be fruitful, the first thing you need to do is repent. That's the crazy thing. It's not a matter of making a list of all the fruit that you're going to bear next week or next month or next year, but it's a matter of turning and facing God himself. And saying against you and, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need what Christ has provided on the cross. So do you want to be fruitful, repent and believe? Do you want to live? Do you want, really want to live? Do you want the life that Christ is offering? Uh, repent and trust yourself uh, to God's grace and mercy. This is the path of wisdom. Uh, T and I picked up, I think my mom was the one that had them on her shelf, a bunch of uh, uh, detective novels. They take place in Canada, and, you know, they're otherwise a little bit forgettable. Uh, but in the very first one, the guy who's the hero, the main detective, takes a young detective who's a bit of a hot mess, you know, raised in, you know, difficult upbringing and all this stuff, takes her under his wing, and he says, you need to learn four things. And I want you to have these things memorized and have them be the fabric 
of your life and of your work uh, here in this police department. And uh, those things stuck with me. I copied them down. I put them in my notes so that I could refer to them. But he said, four things are necessary. You need to know how to say, I don't know, I'm sorry, I need help, and I was wrong. And this is something she just hated. And I think it carries on for three or four more novels. But I want to challenge you to find some place in your life this week where you can say, I don't know. That'll be easy. To say, I'm sorry. Be a little bit more difficult. To say, I need help. Uh, And to say, I was wrong. Uh, Folks, God has in mind for Carriage Lane Church flourishing and fruitfulness. Uh, But it comes as his people repent. Uh, And as they do so, uh, in conjunction with believing the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in a few minutes we're going to be done. We're going to be dismissed. And we're going to greet each other, uh, hopefully cheerfully, uh, on our way out. And uh, an affection will be uh, exchanged and the the beauty of the communion of saints will be enjoyed. Uh, But here you give us a moment uh, prior to that to take stock. And to say a lot of us have uh, abandoned Uh, the hope of repentance. A lot of us really do feel that we've been hurt so badly uh, that we end up taking shelter uh, in that hurt and seeking to be justified by it. Uh, We would ask you, uh, because you desire to do this, that, that Jesus and the power of the cross would loom larger and larger in our lives. Uh, so that we might be able to go back and reflect on your law, reflect on the Ten Commandments a little bit more deeply, on the Beatitudes, on other places where you call your people to obedience. And, and Father, I I pray especially that you would enable us to have the courage uh, to examine relationships in which there has been a, a paucity of forgiveness, that we have... Uh, been reduced merely to tolerance. And we know that uh, in the kingdom of God, uh, there is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would give that to us. Uh, Give us hearts that are inclined toward you. Turn us around so that we can face you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.